And there was one which was super difficult for me where my boss wanted to buy, I and mean, this is when I was the number two guy at the company, wanted to buy a company in the UK. And he valued that company at $750 million, which was about 500 million pounds at the time because it was a UK-based company. And I mean, he knew that we weren't going to be supportive, the management team, but he wanted to buy it for reasons, the exact reason I talked about before. If he doesn't do it, a competitor will. Well, that's all the wrong reason. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is the final installment of our Transformative Influence and Leadership mini-series with Walt Rakowicz. He's the author of Transfluence, which is a really great book. If you don't have a copy, please go buy a copy. I love it. I think I can recommend that one with no hesitation. Well, what are we going to talk about in this final final installment here? So, Jess, we're calling this this final installment "Fear Not, Have Faith." And uh, look, every leader suffers from fear. I did, and I'll tell you a couple of those those stories. But the, the antidote to, to fear is faith, and I, I'm going to talk about what it means to rely on faith to to defeat the fears in your leadership journey. And I'm just looking forward to it. So, hopefully, um, your audience will resonate with some of the things I have to say. Well, I'm sure they would will because I've read the book. I've been interviewing you, and I, I just I have a lot of faith in that one. But thinking about the book, one of the things that resonated with me a lot and that made me take pause and have a look in the mirror was when you were saying that two of the greatest challenges leaders fear that leaders face is fear and pride. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So I I devote I devote a whole chapter actually to this notion of pride, and I know that's not what we're going to talk about completely today, but it has ugly consequences. And, and many organizations have been ruined or hurt by arrogant merit management. But I have equally as much to say about fear. And, and I'll stay on that topic, at least for today. I, I think if leaders' fears can be used effectively uh, for the good in some cases. And, but I also think that they can develop into insecurities. And I know we'll explore, we'll explore both of those today. And when they become insecurities, they become really bad. When they become about the leader, they become, they can become, I should say, really bad. And I think they can cause a leader to be so inwardly focused that they lose sight of their most important responsibility, which is leading and being influential in the lives of those that they lead. And you know that the book is really about, about looking at others and, and being outside of yourself, if you will. And, and I think, unfortunately, pride and fear cause you to, man, think way too much about yourself. And if you can kind of get out of that, I think you can build trust in your organizations. And so that's what I think the two greatest challenges that leaders had. Unfortunately, both of those challenges are all about themselves. Uh, I think I think about some of my biggest failings in business so far and how fear and especially fear for how I would look or fear for what people would think of me have has really been some of the some of the worst like problems we've had because they would be so avoidable had I been able to focus on others and the benefit of the team and and not be self-focused at those times. I think that's right. Uh, although I will say this to your listeners, I 
you know, some of them might be thinking, well, you know, there's been certain times when I've feared and it's actually been good. And, and I do acknowledge that. I think, I think uh, one of the things I, I say in my book is I think it's kind of comical, but Taylor Swift used to always say that she feared every time she gets out and, and does a performance to the audience, she fears it. And, but it makes her perform even better. And I, I think, I think fear can be used to push yourself. Don't get me wrong. I think fear can sharpen you. You know, it can heighten your focus on an issue. I'll tell you one thing, when we were sitting there at, you know, on the verge of bankruptcy, and I was thinking about what our creditors were thinking about our company, let me tell you, that pushed us to do things real rapidly, you know, probably a lot more rapidly than we would have done otherwise, which the first thing was that we sold our China business. And, and we probably wouldn't have reacted that quickly had we not been fearful of what our creditors um, might do. And I think it can also help you to draw support. I talk in my book about a story that I know I covered in the first time in the first podcast, which is the story about me falling and hitting my head and worried about bankruptcy and coming in. And, and that fear really created a vulnerability inside of me that I admitted to people and, and it actually drew support. You know, so there are, you know, we can all come up with reasons why fear could be good or lead to good consequences, but I, I, what I see in leadership nine times out of 10 is that fears become insecurities and, and that's when it gets really bad. Yeah. So when you think about, you know, how fear does become bad for leaders, can you talk about insecurities or any other ways it does that? Yeah, I, I, I can. I, I would say that I think when it becomes an insecurity, is like, like we talked about, I, and, and it can't be harnessed for good. When it becomes almost embedded in a leader, that it affects their performance. And when it becomes too much about the leader themselves. So I, I, I think I mentioned in the first podcast, but I, I want to come back to this because it's such a powerful article that I saw this article that was written in Harvard Business Review five years ago. And it was written by a gentleman by the name of Roger Jones. And so he had done research on over 100 leaders throughout the world. And most of them, interestingly enough, were outside the United States. There was a piece in the United States, but most of them were from Europe and Asia. So it was a pretty good cross-section culturally of leaders. And he asked them what their biggest fears were, you know, and, and, and of course, you know, you, you would think that these leaders would be talking about their business, you know, or their employees leaving or their competition. And, and, you know, what shocked me, or perhaps it shouldn't have shocked me was the number one fear was incompetence. And, and the number two fear was underachievement. And, you know, when you look at those fears as the number one and number two fears that leaders have, they're really all about the leaders. And in, when, I, when he talked about incompetence, he, he elaborated on that. And he said, really what that is, is a fear of being wrong. And I have to admit, I had the same fear at Prologis a lot or not having the right answer. And in some cases, he said, you know, it led to dictatorial leadership or leaders that actually didn't listen because they were worried about being wrong. And so they didn't want somebody to tell them that they were wrong as well, which you know, that would just compound the issue. Or um, this, this whole notion of underachievement, which is, you know, fear of not doing enough or like, you know, fear of the competition doing something before you did, or perhaps it's somebody internally in the organization that comes up with an idea before you do, whatever that is. And he talked about it perhaps leading to a lack of discipline in, in the organization. And by the way, the third fear was appearing too vulnerable, which I, I find also very interesting. And so, you know, I, I have to tell you, these fears hit me like a brick because they were front and center to some of the things that 
I had witnessed the prologist before I left. And quite frankly, I saw it myself in some, in some respects. And so the story, as the story goes, I, I left the company because I was in disagreement with our leader. And, and many of those things were because I saw a lack of discipline. I saw leaders, you know, my boss who didn't listen to me. And, 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 and one of the most interesting stories, I think, to ram this home was that we had an executive in the management team. This is before I left. We had an executive who wasn't doing a great job. And most of the executive team knew it. And most of the executive team had gone to the CEO and said, this person just is not pulling their weight. And the CEO knew it. And the CEO was not sure how to deal with it. So the CEO hired a coach to come in and coach all of us in the hopes that we would all come up with the answer, which is to say, this person isn't performing. And he could go to that person and say, look, this is what the coach said. So that's exactly what happened. And so he built up uh, a, a pretty good war chest of information to give this person to, in essence, fire them. But another interesting thing happened, and that was that as he built this war chest of information on somebody else, there was also a war chest of information that was being built about him. In other words, we did 360 degree. He, he said, we can't just coach this person. Let's just coach all of us because it will look like to this person like we singled them out. So we all got coached, including him. And unfortunately, he found a lot of things about himself that didn't really sound too good. So what did he do after he fired the person he needed to fire? He then fired the coach because he didn't want the coach telling him the things, the very things that everybody else wanted him to tell him. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? And that's the issue. I mean, that, I think that's, that's exactly the issue. And, and I can tell you, there's probably many of your listeners that are saying, yep, they're saying, amen. I, I know someone like that. And, and, and why? Because he feared, he, you know, he, he feared what someone was going to tell him about himself and he didn't want to deal with it. And that's what I'm talking about. And so those fears pervade in organizations. And that's why I really believe that leaders have to get out of their own way and they have to, and they have to be willing to recognize things about themselves and deal with them because we all have issues. We all have fears. But if you can't deal with them, you're going to really have a tough time managing people over time. And you're really going to have a tough time building trust. So can, can we talk about this? Because I think, I think it's the point when I got completely sold out to your book is when you, when you describe this turnaround, you know, companies had tens of billions of dollars, $20 billion market cap. It's down to $500 million. You're taking over. And there's a lot of leaders who would have been tempted to write the book about you know, how luckily for the company, I, the white knight showed up and fixed everything. And instead you start this story off with, with like getting to a place of such anxiety that you have to go for a walk and, and pass out and hit your head. And do you mean like, that is such a, that is such a deeply honest and vulnerable thing to be sharing that a lot of leaders would have been tempted to leave out. Can you, can you talk about that for yourself? Yeah. I like to, I like to visualize pride and fear as storms around you. And I think that we have to build a microclimate around ourselves of good practices. And I think we have to establish what I would call an inner confidence and sense of security that kind of thwarts those fears and helps us deal with it. I think sometimes dealing with it is just admitting it, which, you know, there, there we go with pride, but just admitting it is, is helps you defeat it and putting your pride aside, you know? But I think there's, 
But I think there's also part of the best, best practices or good practices is I think there are things that we have to have faith in. And, you know, I, I, I write in my book a quote, which I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read to you. This is, this is from H.P. Lovecraft, who was one of the most significant authors of horror fiction. I love this book. He says that the oldest and strongest emotion of a man is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. Now, that might sound obvious, but one thing that both fear and faith have in common is they're both focused on the future. Fear believes in a negative future. Faith believes in a positive future, a can-do future, a glass half full, not half empty. And I think the, you know, for me, part of it is just the mindset. Part of it is that, you know, it's what I put in that future bucket that enables me to have less fear. That's a good practice to me. And so I think sometimes it's just a thought away. And then other times it takes an intentional focus on some things that, you know, that help you believe and help you believe that you're ready and uh, prepared for that fear that is ahead of you. And if you think more about those things and less about the fear, you can conquer it. So I want to ask you about this. I want to ask you what you had faith in, because I, I think it, this is almost more of a question as an author. You know, this is a story that happened a dozen years ago, and there's nobody going to fact check you. You can write it however you want to write it in the book, right? And not only do you tell the story about this happening, you also out yourself that you come back to the boardroom table and try to pretend like you don't have this huge thing on your head until somebody calls you on it, right? And, and you do not have to do that. So what, what is it that you had the faith in to be that vulnerable now and not edit that story to make it more convenient when so many of us would have the fear that people would think, people might think less of me if I'm that honest about how I'd acted at first? Well, there's, let's do this. Let's say, I, I, I would say that part of that is the last thing I'm going to cover. Okay. And that, and that is my faith. But let me cover a few things first that I think are, are critically important. Okay. Um, I had one of the best teams in the world when I took over. They would admit, and I would admit, that we were all a little bit dysfunctional. We had to come together. When your stock goes down over 95%, there's a lot of people that are working a lot of hours, and they're emotional, and they have issues. And But the truth of the matter is I had really one of the smartest teams in the world. So I was blessed by that. And I think, so I think the first obvious thing that I could put faith in is my people. It was the people that surrounded me. I I think leaders need, need to listen to people and rely on the people more than themselves. Most times leaders think that they have all the answers. The truth of the matter is that the people around you have more answers than you do. You might understand the bigger picture, but when it comes to execution and the details, they know what's going on. And one of the most significant people that I met in this journey of writing a book was a gentleman by the name of Frank Blake. And I write about him in the book. He was the CEO of Home Depot. Terrific guy. And, and in the book, I tell the story about the inverted pyramid. Frank Blake took over Home Depot and their stock was down 40 to 50% when he took over. Uh, the previous CEO had been let go of. Frank was, ran the legal, he was a chief counsel and became the CEO. And the first thing he thought about was, you know, how, how do I best run this company and create the best culture I can? And he read this book called Built from Scratch, which was written by the Home Depot founders. And it talked about, you know, it talked about basically putting yourself as a CEO at the bottom of the pyramid, not the top of the pyramid. So most people's pyramids 
when they when they when they draw out how everybody interacts in the company, they put the CEO up top and then corporate support below the C- CEO and then field support below that and then frontline associates below that and then customers below that. And Frank said, no, no, no. And he, on his inaugural speech with his employees, which everybody watched, he said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to flip the pyramid and I'm going to be at the bottom and the frontline employees and the customers are going to be at the top. And when he did that, he won the hearts of people immediately. And he went out and started to visit people. And, you know, he's a people guy in the first place. But but I think that that inverted pyramid does a couple things. One, it recognizes that the most important things as a CEO happen above you. And I actually think that's the case for most leaders. And, and the second thing is it, it, pushes, it forces you to push your communications to those people uphill, <laughs> meaning that's never an easy thing to do. But the most important thing, and this relates to what I'm talking about in terms of having faith, is it helps you to rely on and have faith in others which is more powerful than just you. It actually minimizes who you are and maximizes who they are. So the, so the most obvious thing that I had when I came into the room that night is I realized that I had a great team of people and that actually they were the ones that were going to come up with the answers, not me. And I was really in a vulnerable position and because I didn't really have the answers. And, you know, quote unquote, CEOs are hired to have the answers. Well, that's not true. CEOs are hired to mobilize people who have the answers. And that night was the beginning of a couple of things. One, I think it was the beginning of people beginning to trust me as an individual. They felt empowered. And number two, that was the beginning of coming up with the answer that solved the problem for the company. And I didn't come up with that answer. The people in the room did. I just had to show them that they mattered and that I was willing to rely on them. Man, that's so inspirational. It's so simple but so inspirational. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of us that have heard, have heard advice like that many times. But for me, there's such conviction in your voice when you say it, that it makes me like, as you're talking here, I'm just sitting, going through our businesses, thinking about all the places I could be doing more of this. You know, talking about this idea of your people being the most obvious thing to have faith in, what other things do you put faith in? Well, I, I, I prepare, um, maybe overly prepared person. I think self-development and, and your own preparation, sometimes we underestimate the things that, that we do as a person. I, I'm, I'm really a big believer. If your audience hasn't picked up on this by now, I'll make sure that they do in this comment. I really am a big believer in understanding yourself, understanding your strengths and your weaknesses, measuring yourself, you know, holding yourself accountable. And in my case, that meant being coached, you know, and, and having somebody to bounce ideas off of. And so I think having a personal board board of directors is really important to talk to, you know, sometimes people outside the company will help. And even if you don't formally organize a board of directors, that's, I'm, I'm not talking about getting everybody in the room, but know the four or five people that you can call that you trust and you can talk to about issues that might be really helpful to you. Sometimes they're gray haired people and sometimes they're people that are your peers, but everybody needs that. But on the coaching side, I have told a couple of stories on the coaching side, but, I, but one that, that really hits me is I still remember the first time I met with my coach after he had done extensive 360 degree evaluations of me and, and personality testing. And, and I remember walking into him and he said, Walt, you know, you are, he said, let me tell you the good news and the bad news. The good news is that people really like working for you. The bad news is 
your empathy scores just aren't that high. And he said, they could be better. And I thought, God, you know, I said, Frank, I, I really think I'm an empathetic leader. And he said, well, you might think you are, but you may be defining it the wrong way. And he said, you know, a couple of your direct reports told me that they really have a tough time getting a hold of you. You run around the office like a chicken with your head cut off. You're trying to save the company. You're putting too much on your shoulders. And you need to relax in that regard. And you need to understand that the relationships you build with the people that report to you are the probably the most important thing that you have to foster. And also the relationships within your company. And, and he said, quit putting it all on your shoulder and make sure that you're you know, putting it on other shoulders and you show them that, you know, you're not showing them that you're fearful. You're not showing them that you're running around like a chicken with your head cut off, but you're, you, you, you're showing them that you care about them. Right. And I thought that was unbelievable advice. And I didn't expect to get that advice. We all kind of think that, oh, we're doing things the right way. And, you know, everybody thinks we're doing things the right way. No, that isn't the case. No matter how, how, how good you think you are, there are things that you can improve on. So, the first thing is, is coaching. I, I think the second thing just for me is knowing your non-negotiables. I talk in the book about three non-negotiables. I'd never like to do more than three because I forget. So three is my max. But for me, I, I've always wanted to be a man of excellence. I've wanted to be a man of integrity. And I wanted to be a man of accountability. And those are the three things that I think about a lot. And they become a litmus test for me. They become, if you will, my backbone when it comes to really, really difficult situations. And there was one which was super difficult for me where my boss wanted to buy, I mean, this is when I was the number two guy at the company, wanted to buy a company in the UK. And he valued that company at $750 million, which was about 500 million pounds at the time because it was a UK-based company. And I mean, he knew that we weren't going to be supportive, the management team, but he wanted to buy it for reasons, the exact reason I talked about before. If he doesn't do it, the competitor will. Well, that's all the wrong reason. And, and all of us thought, man, we're overpaying for this company. You know, I think we're overpaying by like a third, like $250 million. And so we approached him about it. And he said, we're not, I, I, I did. And a few other of the executives said, we're really not in favor of this. And he knew I was on the board of the company and as he was, and he said, I fully expect you to vote in favor of this transaction, period, end of story. I don't want to hear that you don't like it. He said, I want your support. And I'm going to tell you, I struggle with that. So the CEO of the company is telling you as the president, that's what you got to do. And I looked at that list, litmus test, the second one, which is integrity. And I said, I can't do something that I don't believe in. I just can't. And I didn't vote for it. And I and the book will tell you all the other story around how I dealt with it. But it was a real dilemma. And I, But I couldn't go against my non-negotiables. And unfortunately, it led to a very strained relationship from there and in between he and I that ultimately left, led to me leaving the company, which seemed really detrimental to me at the time. But I would not go against the things that were absolutely unequivocally non-negotiables for me. So you, you talk about what other things you have faith in. I think I have faith in my self-development. I have faith in my preparation. I have faith in some of the things that outside people have told me like coaches and I have faith in my non-negotiables. That's great. That's funny. I've already heard these stories, but I love hearing them again. Is there also a spiritual element to faith for you? There is, you know, one quote, I've been asked that question before. One quote that 
that always resonated with me is when President Lincoln was in the midst of the Civil War and, it, and you know, he felt like he was in a corner. And he one time said that he had been driven to his knees many times by an overwhelming conviction that he had nowhere else to go. And there were days at Prologis where I felt like I had nowhere else to go. In other words, I couldn't really share things with the coach. I couldn't share things with my, my friends outside because they, they were just too complex, not because they were confidential as much as they were just too complex. And so I had that same yearning. I've had that same yearning. And, you know, when I really fear something, I take it to God. That, that, is, that is for me. I, I'm not trying to say that should be for everybody because, you know, it's a personal thing. But I can't tell you how many times I have spent time with my creator and received strength and found answers. Oddly enough, found answers to my dilemmas. So for me, yes, the answer to your question is yes, I, I've spent, I probably spend 30 minutes a day, almost every day, and pretty consistently in the morning. I'm, it sounds sick, but I wake up at 4.30 to 5 just about every day because I try to make time for that. It gives me the clarity that I need. And frankly, I don't recall ever making a critical decision to Prologis without asking him for help. So Yes, he's the ultimate answer to my fears. You know, I appreciate you sharing that. You know, I don't necessarily talk about it a lot on the show, but I also consider myself a man of faith. You know, I feel like if if you want to talk to God, pray. If you want God to talk to you, read your scriptures. <laughs> That's mine, right? Yeah. So uh, people on the show know I'm a real audiobook nerd, but I started this thing where I just tell myself I'm not allowed to listen to any of those books until I've listened to my scriptures first in the morning. And it's been interesting how many times I wake up and there's something pressing on my mind and I'm thinking, okay, you know what? I need to go dig up this book because I know I had something good to say about that and it's going to help me think it through. And I'm like, oh, no, my non-negotiable is I got to listen to my scriptures first. Mm -hmm. And so, so many times, some idea that has nothing to do with what I was reading comes to mind or just, it's been this like lifting weight off my shoulders kind of thing for me. And so I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, you know, it's a personal decision and I do remember Remember though, but but I'm not afraid to share it. I mean, I I, I think it's um, important to share it because everybody uh, thinks differently about these things. I can remember one time when somebody asked me a question in a company, and you know I'm running a public company at the time, right? So you know, and somebody asked me a question, well, how are you dealing with this? And I can remember thinking I'm sitting up, at the, standing up at the podium. There's absolutely, you know, it was one of these things where you have this empty thought in your mind. And I said, well, I, I can honestly tell you that on my way into work this morning, I did nothing but pray from my house all the way into the office. Yeah. So I can tell you how I'm dealing with it. It has a lot to do with my faith. And, 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 and the person asked me was a woman. She said, well, talk, talk more about that. And I, I find it easier when somebody's asking you a question and I, I, I you know, I don't, I certainly don't try to hit people over the head with it, but it is certainly something that is incredibly meaningful to me. Well, myself as well. I think there's there's this thing in the business world, in my experience, where in a in an effort to be respectful of other people's beliefs, sometimes I've I've felt trepidatious about sharing mine at all because there's others who have been so overbearing of, and everybody needs to believe the same thing I do. Yeah. And yet, when I hear other people share theirs, whether theirs is the same as me or not. I feel I feel it helpful to me. So anyways, it's it's an interesting thing. You know, one thought that I have as you were talking and talking about having faith in preparation, about 10 times during this interview, I've thought about a Michael Jordan interview 
mm. where people asked him about being scared before games. And he says, well, I didn't really fear. Yeah. So because I knew I had prepared. Yep. So I didn't have to fear. And, you know, you talked a bunch about insecurities. And I think, you know, like, I'd be interested in any advice you have of, so somebody like me, who's earlier in their earlier in their career than you, right? And, and, you know, our listeners know we're trying to build uh, a REIT and we don't have the preparation that somebody like you has had at this point in your career. And there are like, there's legitimate insecurities about things we haven't experienced yet. You know, we've tried to build the best team and got a CEO who's been at multi-billion dollar REITs, but not a, not a REIT that has 120 billion in assets, like Prologis, right? And so- no. I'm interested in any thoughts you have for us where we still have preparation and work to do to reach the level of our careers that you have done. And yet we have done some things and, and just any thoughts you have about navigating the, the confidence insecurities balance beam there. You know, I think it's a great question and um, I'm, I'm going to give you an answer that maybe you hadn't thought about, or maybe you have thought about. I, I think, I think part of success too, and I didn't really cover this, but I actually think part of success is failure. And, and, and getting up from that failure, making mistakes. People ask me all the time who my, my role models are in life, my leadership role models. And I tell them the first one is Nelson Mandela, okay? And why, you know, why is that? Nelson, I mean, not that, I mean, most people do respect Nelson Mandela. But, you know, Nelson Man, Mandela was a radical. And, you know, he was sentenced to life imprisonment for some of the, the campaign, if you will, that he ran against the government of South Africa. Now, we could all argue whether or not it was a good campaign, but it got radical and it got ugly and messy. And so he spends 27 years in jail and then he gets out from jail and he realizes that life is about reconciliation. Life isn't about, about being the radical. And he begins to work with the nation's president to end apartheid. And then he ultimately becomes president himself. And in doing that, he realizes that he has to reach out to the other side, if you will, the white man in, in South Africa. And the rugby team is, the South African rugby team is, is, is an all-white team or predominantly white team. And, and you either loved them or hated them, but, you know, the blacks in South Africa did not love the rugby team because of the racial makeup of the team. And Nelson Mandela decides that he's going to go to a rugby match and he's going to show up there. And I can't remember if he was president or not, but he was widely criticized by his group, if you will, by reaching out the olive branch. But through reconciliation and through humility and through doing the difficult things, right, he realized that he had made mistakes in his life. He realized early on in his life, he had actually done it, gone about it the wrong way. And he ended apartheid. And, and, and so you think about that. Another one, another leader is William Wilberforce. So William Wilberforce grew up in, the, in, in, in Great Britain in the late 1700s. And I believe I've got those dates right. He was a member of British Parliament, but he was a carouser, a drinker. He was thought to be very disorganized. William Pitt who was a great friend of him, was considering him to be part of his administration. And ultimately, Pitt decided not to because of his disorganizational skills or lack thereof. He had a lot of problems, but he devoted himself. He, 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 interestingly enough, we were talking about faith. He found God, and he began to devote himself to humanitarian causes, one of which was defeating the slave trade, which at that time was, I believe the number was over 80% of all Britain's export business, or not, or whatever you call it, foreign direct, or for, foreign direct 
revenues, if you will, like revenues that had come from outside of Britain in. So it was a huge number. And it took him 40 years and he became singularly focused on that issue and ultimately abolished the slave trade in, in the UK. And then that spread throughout the world. But, you know, here was a guy that was, you know, made a lot of mistakes early on in his life, right? But did a lot of good. And, and I know that this doesn't completely relate to your question of, you know, make, you know, making mistakes. I mean, you know, starting a new business and all that good stuff in the read, read industry. And, but the fact of the matter is that people make mistakes and you learn from those mistakes and you'll get, you're going to make mistakes and, and the best leaders make mistakes. And so I think, you know, take a little bit of positivity out of that, hopefully, and, and know that whatever mistakes you make, you'll learn from them and you'll become better at what you do. And I think that's what leadership is all about. Unfortunately, we're in a society, especially with social media, where you can't make mistakes because you just get crucified for them. And it's too bad because I think it, it keeps a lot of people from running for political positions, for example. They're worried about what people will say about them, their families, et cetera. But the fact of the matter is that the best leaders are those that have made them and have rebounded and have become something better as a result of that. You know, I appreciate you sharing that story with our charity, Child Rescue Association, that combats child trafficking and, you know, modern day slavery. William Wilberforce has been a major hero to me over this decade we've been doing this work. But I don't think that I have spent much time thinking about his backstory before that. And, you know, it's funny because I claim to be someone who believes strongly that our past don't have to determine our future, right? And yet I think about my own insecurities and, and insecurities of friends where, you know, when you've made the mistake, but you haven't yet become the Nelson Mandela that everybody knows or the William Wilberforce that everybody knows, any advice for those of us who maybe feel like we're, we're earlier on in that story, right? We're like, okay, we recognize mistakes. We're trying to do better now, but we haven't, we haven't climbed the mountain yet. And yeah, I think our past don't have to be our futures, but I think our past has to be something that we learn from that informs what our future will look like. I don't think we have to go back to the past, but I think we have to learn from it. And I think it would be naive to say that, that past doesn't inform what we do in the future, because to the extent that we made mistakes, we have to learn that we're not going to make them again. So that's why, that's what I, I mean, that's what I would say. And unfortunately it's okay to make them. I know sometimes people that are youthful and I know I was this way when I was too, like, you know, you want to be the perfectionist, right? But, and that's okay. You should go about life believing that and hoping that that will happen. But when it doesn't, and because it inevitably won't, <laughs> you just have to then brush yourself off, you know, and move on and and learn from it. And it's okay. It's okay. You know, it's funny. I heard a, a quip that I thought was funny about experience is what you get when you didn't get what you wanted. <laughs> <laughs> and so I guess my thought there is about the the dust yourself off and get back at it. Yeah. You know, because, you know, it usually, you know, you look at, you look at most big entrepreneurs out there and, and if you look at their histories, there are some pretty big stumbles along the way, right? And that's how they got enough experience that on the next one, they didn't, you know? So I guess my question is about any advice you have after those stumbles when, when people feel like, okay, I know I'm supposed to dust myself off. And, you know, I think it was Winston Churchill who's, who talked about the ability to go from failure to failure without a loss of enthusiasm, you know? <laughs> Just any thoughts about that when you've dusted yourself off and and, uh, you're getting back on the horse again? Humility. The first thing that comes to my mind is humility. Dust yourself off 
You have to, and, and interest, incidentally, I think that humility directly relates to people say, well, humble people aren't confident. That's not true. You know, humble people are actually quite confident. They're actually, at least if they do it the right way, it takes, it takes bold people to be humble and, and, but still be confident. I, I think you have to be, you have to confidently move forward, but you have to move forward with humility, understanding that you're learning along the way and be okay with that. I, I just be at peace with that. And I'm speaking to you as a person that, that actually does believe that I'm probably an overly, I'm, 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 I'm a perfectionist too much. So I'll be the first to admit it. I really am. I like, I'm a former accountant. So when I put the green eye shade on, everything has to be perfect. The numbers have to tick and tie and so forth and so on. And, and that's just the way I am. But I think, but I, but I have come to the recognition at my age that I've made mistakes in life and I'm perfectly okay with it. Looking backward, I just need to learn from it. You know, as you say that, it makes me go back to the faith thing. It's almost like, I guess when you were saying that, I was almost hearing like, we need to have faith that humans can change like William Wilberforce and Nelson Mandela and that having made a mistake doesn't make me a mistake. And that, right. Cause if I, I think if I can, if I can think about it that way of like separating out, like if I have faith that humans can improve, which I genuinely believe, then it's okay to have not, to have not made every choice perfect in the past, as long as I am making those efforts to improve, or I don't know, some, something in there, maybe. That and that gets to this whole word humility. It it is it is all about wanting to improve. And you know, I think one of the problems that I have, and we're in election year right now, and I'm not going to get political, and I'm not going to single out candidates and all that good stuff. But I, you know, I see people getting torn down by the things that they had done in the past. Not just in the presidential election, but I see it happening in, con- in congressional elections and all throughout the country, one party tearing the other one down, digging up information on people. And I think to myself, oh my God, I can imagine if I were one of those people running, there'd be something dug up about me, I guarantee it. And maybe more than one thing for sure. And people aren't perfect, they're just not. And the real question is, do they have the willingness and the desire to change? And if they do, they can become great leaders or they maybe already are great leaders. And so I kind of try to look past that. I realize people have made mistakes in their lives. And I try to look more to the character of the person today and what they are trying to get done today. You know, it actually makes me think about your story you told today about your coach. And I think that there are certain skill sets that I, I aspire to. And so I like to believe that I'm more accomplished at them than I am. And so it, it stings a little bit to find out when I, when I haven't achieved what I would like to think I have, you know, and when you talked about your coach saying your, your empathy scores could improve and you're yeah. like, well, I, I think that I'm an empathetic leader. And he's kind of like, yeah, regardless of what you think, Walt, what the data says <laughs> is what the data says is not does not lie. <laughs> and yet you talked about that other leader who when the data came back and he was faced with the faced with the choice to either change or get rid of the data, he, he chose to get rid of the data. And I think that's a temptation for all of us. And I feel like maybe what you're getting at there is like the humility to be honest about what the data is saying, regardless of what I would like to think about myself. Perfect. It's it's so perfect. That it's interesting. I told two different stories and I was not trying to be intentional about it, but I think your conclusion is absolutely right. It's the, the data may not always tell you what it, you you want to hear, 
but you can't ignore the data. Yeah. And it, it takes humility sometimes when the data doesn't tell you something that you want to hear. You know, go, going back to this idea of faith and preparation, when you're building the airplane in flight because you're doing a startup or, or you're, you're in the intense situation of doing a turnaround, you know, saving a company from bankruptcy, and you wish, man, I wish I could spend 20 years at a, at a turnaround shop so that I would know exactly what to do in this situation. Or I wish, I wish I'd spent 20 years in this industry that we're trying to, we're trying to do something so yeah. that I could have the experience to know what the choice is now. And there isn't always that chance for preparation because it's here and now and the buck stops with me. And can you talk about thinking about preparation and, and, you know, team selection and team training and what to do when we don't have time to prepare because it's here and now? Yeah, there was one thing as, as you were asking that question, there was one thing that came to my mind and, and I, I just, just looking at it right in front of me now, I, I, I read a little bit about this professor. Her name was Amy Cuddy. She's a professor at Harvard business school. And she wrote this book, bringing your boldest self to your biggest challenges. And, um, one of the things that she writes in here is about thinking incrementally. Um, thinking intr- incrementally. She says most most challenges don't get solved overnight. Sometimes it's a marathon. And you know, I, I when I was thinking it, and I was trying to relate this to the things that happened to me at Prologis, You know, when I took over, I realized that man, I was in this amazing position of influence where everybody hung on a lot of the words that I had to say. And uh, and I remember you know struggling with this whole notion of giving people hope, giving people hope that we were going to survive. When deep down inside, I wasn't even sure if we were. Like I was worried about the exact things that you were talking about, right? And, and so I, I, I took an incremental approach towards it. In other words, and, and not just specifically talking about the communication, I never did, I don't remember at least giving people hope, which is to say, pound the table, we are gonna make, make through, you know, kind of let, let, me, let me take the flag in front of you and follow me, okay? We are gonna make it. Let me just tell you exactly how we're gonna do this. That wasn't the case and, and I, I was just the opposite. I said, you know, I don't know, if, I think we're gonna survive, but incre- we are making the right incremental decisions day to day that I believe are the right decisions. And all I can tell you is I'm just gonna communicate with you little by little. And, and by the way, we're gonna make some bad decisions along the way, and we're gonna to have to take some detours and we're gonna come back and we're gonna say, we made a bad decision here, but we're pivoting this way. And so, you know, when, she, when I read what she had written, it was, it was very interesting to me because that's the approach that we took. It was an incremental approach. It was, it was little by little. It was doing the little things that was blocking and tackling every day. And then it was course correcting. And, and communicating that and pivoting and, and, and then maybe going in a slightly different direction than we thought we were going to go. And, but, but, you know, it was just a day-to-day kind of thing. And, and then all of a sudden we looked back and it was two or three years later and we had made it. And I think maybe if you're an entrepreneur starting up your new company, two or three years later, you have made it or maybe five years, right? But when you're going through it, you know, it's an incremental approach and it's, it's a little bit of trial and error and it's moving in this direction and moving in that direction. And there's nothing that I can say that I, you know, I, 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 that I, that we did, or we carried the flag and we just knew we were going to make it through. And we had, you know, we had conviction. No, that really is, wasn't the case. We had doubts. We probably had more doubts than we had conviction, but we were transparent about it. We communicated it. We were honest with people. Every, we took people along the same journey that we were on 
and we made changes and ultimately over time by hook or crook we got through it you know as you say that it makes me think about some of my investing heroes warren buffett bruce flat brookfield howard marks at oak tree and I feel like they do some of this, and I'd be interested for you to weigh in on as well. Like this, there's like a there's like a confidence about their skill sets and their frameworks and their approach to things, and and an unabashed humility that they don't claim to know the future. You know, and can you talk about that? Where investors and staff are looking to you, they they want to like rest on your confidence. And this balance beam of like, I'm confident in our preparation, I'm confident in our analysis, and I'm humble enough to be honest that I'm not a fortune teller. You just articulated it perfectly. I think that's, I I truly believe that's the recipe for success. And I think that people will go along with that, that are working with you or for you, if you're just transparent and you communicate exactly what you just said, because that's the way that we all make decisions in our life. We never completely know even if we say we're convicted, the fact of the matter is that nobody really knows, but you can have faith in your processes. You can have faith in the people around you. You can have faith in your preparation. You can um, have faith in all of those things. And in my case, I'll just add, I have faith in, in a higher being, but those are all critically important. And you know, I got to tell you, nine times out of 10, they actually get you through. Even if you're not 100% confident that you know exactly how it's going to happen, they will get you through. Well, I love that. Maybe maybe one other question that I have here is, as you think about patience, you know, we didn't really bring this up, but but I feel like a theme, at least that I've got out of your out of your answers today, is that like, I got this sense, and you can correct me here, that when you're in a place of fear, it's like panicky and you run around like a chicken with your head cut off. And when you're in a place of faith, you're like, you're intentional, you're making forward motion, but you have the patience to be honest about how long it's going to take or something. Can, that's just a sense I got. Can you correct me or tell me how you see it different? Well, I don't see it any different than that. I think it's a, I would say it's a self-confidence about not necessarily about the answer because we, we don't know what the answer is, but self-confidence that whatever the answer is, it'll be fine. And I think, I think being at peace with yourself, yes. What you've just described is, 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 I think, what we all aspire to have. And I think we can have. Sometimes I think we get a little bit too wigged out about what's in front of us. And I think we have to fill that bucket of uncertainty that H.P. Lovecraft talks about with things that you know, we're a little bit more confident in as opposed to the unknown and fear. And if we fill that bucket, we just picture that. I think we can create the self-confidence and peace, perhaps it is, that you that you refer to. Well, before we wrap up the whole mini-series, let's, let's wrap up this episode here. I'm going to go for the same question as yesterday of what question didn't I ask about running towards, <laughs> running towards this and, and the, the fear not have faith? Wow, I can tell you that you've you've asked a million questions and I think you've hit it from all angles. So this time I'm going to give you complete credit and say, I've got nothing more. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been really fun. I'm so glad you, you came back on to do the mini series here. Thinking about both our initial interview and these, these next three parts here, what do you hope what do you hope to leave people with or what would be a good way to, to, for people to think about all this? I would just wrap up by saying that I refer to my book, Transfluence, but I, I really, I think leadership is, is truly about transforming the lives of other people. I, 
I think too often we focus on the objective. And in my case, way back when that objective was financial performance, turning around the company, it's the stated objective. It's the objective that the board thinks about when they hire you into this job. But really, it's it's more about the journey. And we sometimes miss what that journey has. And that journey to me is is about leading people. It's about changing people's lives. It's about watching people grow. It's about giving them credit. It's about you know lifting them up, making them better leaders themselves so that hopefully they'll take over for you someday. I just think that that's really the, the journey of it all. And it's part that nobody talks about, but in reality, you get, you get to your conclusion, you get to the stated objective if you do it the right way during the journey. And the journey is about influencing other people in a transformative way, making them better at, at who they are. If you do that, I think you'll find leadership is a lot of fun. And I think you'll accomplish the goals that you set for yourself. You know, I think about, I think about some of my takeaways from this mini series that maybe I didn't expect going into it. And I feel like this whole idea of the inverted pyramid and the servant leadership approach it does make me think so much more about, you know, this being a team sport to getting to that objective. And, you know, back to Michael Jordan, you look, the guy was such an incredible ball player, but before he had Pippen to work with him, before they had Dennis Rodman to rebound, you know, like he was not winning championships. Right. And you look at our school system and, and the way that the media likes to reward one single person with the success instead of all the, you know, it's much more complicated to, to profile a team. It's much easier to just pick one, the face of a company and claim that they did everything, right? And we, we have so many things in our lives telling us that it all depends on us or that the one person is what matters and that, you know, it gets reinforced, do your homework by yourself, otherwise it's cheating, Right. And yet, as I hear you talk over and over, I get this sense of like, nope, treat it like a team sport, do the inverted pyramid, be the servant leader, so that everybody on the team, like have that influence to help them transform into the team that's going to get this objective, like have a little faith, have a little patience in bringing them all around and having them feel the purpose and meaning of being here and growing into it. And kind of like, I don't know, there's that saying of, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Mm -hmm. And anyways, that's, that's one of the themes I got from this that I didn't expect. Do you have any reaction to that? My reaction is just, you are a great learner <laughs> and uh, you did one heck of a job. I couldn't have summarized it any better. And um, I'm just so excited to have been on, on this, on these, this series of podcasts. I, I have to tell you, it's been such a great time peering into the details with you and you're a great student. You've learned really, really well. And I can't be more delighted to have experienced this with you. Well, hopefully we can talk you back into coming back a couple of times a year and, and people will get to keep hearing from you over time here. Oh, I'm sure we can work something like that out. Thanks, Jess. Thanks. I love it. Take care. Thanks everybody for listening. Bye now. Bye-bye.